Because if we would actually be able to focus all of our attention on all of the good that is happening around us, as opposed to all of the negativity and the bad that is around us, we would actually be able to recognize what actually works. If we were to actually able to recognize what actually works, we would recognize that Trump works because he works for women and all Americans in general. Hi, you guys, and welcome back to the official House of Dimash podcast. I'm Ariel Dimash. And Zane here. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We are so excited to continue our series on what has Trump done for minorities. And if you guys are joining us for the first time, we just want to say welcome. Hi, guys. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So we started this podcast series, which is also available on iTunes and Spotify. Just a little plug there. (laughs) Which is kind of fun because you guys could take us with you on the go wherever you go. And uh, this series is based on a question that we received from one of our viewers. And she asked, when I hear you say that Trump has done a lot for this country and for minorities, please give me some idea of what the bleep you guys are talking about. So in episode two, we focused on the black community. And then in episode three and four, we focused on minorities overall. And in today's episode, we are going to focus on women. But before we do, if you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe and hit that notification so that you guys could know when our next video comes out or a podcast or or our lives or our lives yeah <laughs> and of course give us a thumbs up because it really really does help our channel it really does and we would love 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 to know what you guys think of this podcast and what kind of future podcasts you would like to see as well so make sure to leave us a comment below let's start the dialogue absolutely and we will also want to give a special shout out to all of the people who have joined us in our YouTube live. Oh, absolutely. We go live every Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time in drag. We have so much fun. Actually, we have a blast. We only had a couple of episodes so far, but they have been so awesome, really life-changing for us. We were able to become a part of a wonderful, really wonderful community that's inquisitive and super genuine and just very, very interesting people from all over the U.S. and even the world. We also want to give a very special shout out to Elizabeth, Justin, Cher, and David. Thank you guys so much. You guys have given us such an awesome gift and it was just the best way to start the Jewish New Year. It's something that we are going to remember literally forever. So huge, huge thank you. That was life-changing for us and we really appreciate it. Yes, you guys, that was the best New Year's gift ever. It was such a great way to start the New Year. Your gifts and your comments mean so much to us. Speaking of comments, thank you so much to Third Party Animal as well for your insistence on us doing a podcast regarding school choice. We think it's such an important topic. And even though we've talked about it multiple times, after reading your comment on our second live video that we've done, we realized that we absolutely have to do an entire podcast about it. Your comment was so thought provoking and you really analyzed the subject greatly. And you really touched about both sides of the argument regarding school choice. And if any of you are curious to read that comment, we highly suggest it. Um, It's on our second live video. And uh, thank you, because now we'll do a full episode after we're done with our series. Yes, absolutely. Okay, you guys. Well, we have a lot 
lot to get into today, so let's get into it. Definitely. And so the way we decided to do it this time, uh, just like last time, we like to keep our podcast around the one hour mark. And when we realized that this is going to be closer to the two hour mark, we decided to break it down into two parts. And the first part is going to specifically concentrate on the historical accuracy of Trump's treatment towards women before he even became president and the GOP's historic commitment to women's issues throughout the last 100 plus years. And then in part two, we're going to look at specifically what Trump and his GOP colleagues have done in order to help women during his presidency. And the reason why we like to keep these podcasts around the one hour mark is because honestly, we have a technical difficulty with uploading our videos to YouTube. Sometimes it takes nine hours just to upload a one hour podcast. And sometimes it's even taken up to like three, three days. One of our podcasts took three days to upload. So um, we found if we keep it around the one hour mark, it's easier to upload uh, versus, you know, a two hour podcast. I don't think we would ever be able able to to. (laughs) upload one. So that's basically the reason why we like to keep it around the one hour mark. But if you guys have any tricks or if you guys know of anything that might help us just from a technical perspective, we would love to know. Please comment and let us know. Um, We're thinking that it's most likely just because of our computer. We have a really uh, old and slow Mac. So we're thinking it probably has more to do with our computer than YouTube but any feedback any help would be really really greatly appreciated oh yes definitely thank you guys Okay, Ariel, are we ready? Absolutely. I am so excited about today's podcast uh, because there's just so much to talk about and so many unknowns that Trump has done for women. And I just want to talk about all of it. Unfortunately, it's just not possible because he has done so much. And if we were to cover everything, we would just be talking here forever. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot that he's done ever since we've written this podcast. And, you know, just the latest news uh, that we've heard, for example, are about Attorney General Barr and Ivanka Trump that announced that the DOJ is going to provide $35 million in housing to human trafficking victims. So Wow, that's amazing. It really, really is. And I mean, the reality is that these grants will fund 73 organizations to provide up to two years of transitional housing for victims and other people struggling with uh, human trafficking and sexual abuse. And that's just one thing that we're not going to have the time to cover about, but there's so, so, so much more. So we'll just get into it right now. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so do you guys remember about a couple of months ago on August 14th, 2020, Trump sent out a tweet that said, I have done more for women than just about any president in history. As we celebrate the 100th anniversary of women's voting rights, we should build a beautiful statue in Washington, D.C. to honor the many brave women who made this possible for a great country. He also followed that tweet up with another one saying, Congress should send me H.R. 473 ASAP and make this happen. It will inspire all women to continue being bold and brave and achieving their dreams. I think that's amazing. It is. And for those that don't know, uh, H.R. 473 authorizes the Every Word We Utter monument to establish a commemorative work in the District of Columbia and its environs and for other purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's something that's really, really important. I hope they get it done. But, you know, in general, as much hate as uh, Trump and his administration are getting, specifically when it comes to their work with the female uh, population of this country, despite all of that, from a historical perspective, the Republican 
party should actually be considered and celebrated as the women's party. Which of course is never discussed in in social media or mainstream media at all. At all, really. I mean, I rarely hear or hear anything about it. And that's why I think it's so important for us to just for a brief moment separate Trump from the GOP and the Republican Party. Because if we can understand the historical connections that the GOP has had to women's issues, we can then also understand why Trump's placement within the GOP really, really makes sense when it comes to supporting women and women's rights and issues that they care about. Obviously, we already know that the mainstream media definitely leans left. Um, So a lot of these things are not discussed. So that's why we have really have designed these podcasts specifically for you guys so that you can go and get all of the information in one condensed area. So in this podcast, we are going to go and we're going to break down all of the different things, specifically what Trump's done, what the GOP has done for the female population of the US. Yes, definitely. Okay, so from a historical perspective, it's really interesting because in my opinion, the Republican Party should really be considered and celebrated as the Women's Party. Well, that's a very controversial thing, Ariel. <laughs> right there, just the, the first statement. Um, but it's, it's interesting because, you know, they really should be doing so much better with this increasingly important electorate that today makes up the majority of our voters. Yeah. So, I mean, just for historical context, right? Like the GOP began as the Women's Party. They actually fought for and promoted women's suffrage 40 years before it became law. And that is definitely never discussed in mainstream oh, media. Oh, never. <laughs> never. Right? And just for, I guess, our younger audiences or the, for the people that forgot, the younger audience that might not know this, the women's suffrage movement was a decades-long fight, almost 100 years, about 80 years to be exact, uh, to win the right to vote for women in the United States. And on August 26, 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was finally ratified, prohibiting the states and the federal government from denying the right to vote to citizens of the United States on the basis of sex. And following this uh, ratification of the 19th Amendment, the Republicans were also the first to elect a woman to Congress. They elected Jeanette Peckering Rankin, who was an American politician and woman rights advocate, and the first woman ever to hold federal office in the United States. She was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives as a Republican from Montana in 1916, and again in 1940. Wow, you guys, think about that. In 1916, that was over a hundred years ago, the Republicans voted in a woman into Congress. That's amazing. That's incredible, especially since you consider that that was four years before the 19th Amendment was actually ratified, allowing women to vote. So yeah, that means that Republican men have actually voted for a woman to be part of the House of Representatives. That's something to think about. Definitely. But it doesn't stop there. They also chose the first female speaker of a state house, and that was Minnie D. Craig of North Dakota in 1933. And they also elected the first female Supreme Court justice under President Reagan, Sandra Day O'Connor, and she served from 1981 to 2006. Which I think is very interesting, especially for the younger people who are listening to us right now. A lot of the younger people think it's actually um, RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was the first female Supreme Court justice, which is not true at all. It's not correct. She was actually the second. And so even though she definitely has her place in history, being the first woman elected to the Supreme Court is not one of those reasons. She's done many other wonderful things, uh, both for women and men as well, actually. And so she definitely deserves her place in history, but not as the first woman. And I think this is very interesting for the younger generation who's actually listening to us right now, because I know there is a lot of hatred towards Reagan, but here you go. Reagan was the first president, a Republican president, who nominated the first female Supreme Court justice. Not just Republican, but also the first conservative. And I think that's very exciting because it really, again, just shows you how much conservatives value women. But the sad reality is that despite 
all of this, since the late 1980s, the tides actually began to shift. And especially after the confirmation hearings to appoint Justice Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, because that happened in 1991. And Thomas at the time was nominated to the Supreme Court bench by President George H.W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you guys remember, especially again, the younger generation that's listening to us. At the time, a woman by the name of Anita Hill came forward with allegations that Thomas had sexually harassed her when they worked together at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and her testimony drew national attention. Of course, obviously, Thomas denied the allegations and called the hearings a high-tech lynching at the time. Mm, So I think that would be considered the first high-tech lynching of the time, most likely. And it seems like this has been a common theme throughout now. And, And it has. But the interesting thing is that at the time, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991, when uh, Thomas was nominated, was none other than (laughs) Joe Biden. There you go. Yes. And uh, he actually got a lot of criticisms because at the time, Biden actually had the audacity to ask her to share the most embarrassing of all of the incidents. Uh, He also, he got criticized a lot for it because aside from putting her on the spot, he also failed to control his committee colleagues. And he's been criticized for his decision not to call other women to testify who were willing, actually willing to corroborate her charges. Wow. Now, Biden did call Anita Hill to apologize. That was in 2019, long after he ran for president. And um, she also said that she will most likely vote for Biden over Trump anyways, just because she really strongly disagrees with Trump and many of his policies. But I think throughout this podcast, what we're going to be looking at is a theme. And that theme is what our leaders and politicians are doing when they're talking to people directly, but also what they're doing behind closed doors. And also, what are they doing when the tides are not going their way? What are they doing before they ran for office? What did they do before they ran for president? And also, what did they do when they needed to stand up to very unpopular opinions? And in this case, we can clearly see that since 1991 to 2019, it's been quite a few years and Biden has had multiple chances to call Anita Hill and apologize to her. And the fact that he chose to apologize after the Me Too movement, uh, after he already announced that he's going to be running for president again and, you know, needed the black support specifically because black support for Democratic candidates has been eroding drastically since Trump came into office because of all the things that he's done to help the black community. And if you're just listening and if you're just tuning in now and you haven't seen our um, podcast on what Trump has done for the black community, make sure to check that out because we really go into depth and really talk about what he has really done. Absolutely. And But it was interesting because only now did Biden think that it would be appropriate and necessary to apologize to her. Meanwhile, she's been carrying the scars of his treatment towards her for years. Yeah. Uh, years. Yeah. Uh, but any case, moving on, uh, you know, Democrats realizing the historic opportunity at the time uh, seized that mantle as the party of the women, and they've used their influence within the mainstream media to further drive a wedge between the Republican Party and its potential women voters. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, since 1988, Republicans have lost the women's vote in every single presidential election, with the largest margin in 2012. And that was when, back then, Republican challenger to Barack Obama was Mitt Romney. Mm. Now, if you guys remember, Remember, back then, Mitt Romney and the Republicans lost the woman's vote by approximately 12 points. Uh, which is huge. I mean, that's absolutely huge. And in fact, it was the highest margin of women who felt disenfranchised from the Republican Party and its Republican nominee in particular, Mitt Romney. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys remember this. I think it was in the second, uh, possibly in the third debate between Obama and Mitt Romney. At the time, he was asked the question about what he's done in order to further women's participation in his administration when he was uh, governor of 
Massachusetts. And uh, he responded by saying that he's asked his aides to bring him binders full of women. Yeah, I remember that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, at the time, I thought, you know, as weak of a candidate as Mitt Romney was, there was huge injustice that was done towards him because Obama seized on that comment. And, you know, he said, why would you need binders full of women? You know, women are not binders. They're not objects. You know, they're human beings. And of course, the media seized on this comment and uh, made him seem uh, incredibly anti-female when in reality, all he was saying is, I wanted to make sure that the people that I put in charge are females. And I wanted to make sure that the resumes that I look at are only, only female resumes because it's so important for me to put women in charge of powerful positions. Yeah. And so that's what he referred to when he said, bring me binders full of women. You know, maybe he could have articulated uh, <laughs> and yeah. executed uh, his speech a little bit better at the time. But again, you know, uh, that was, I think, the perfect example of how the media misrepresented what uh, a Republican candidate was saying at the time. Yeah. But since then, a lot has happened. And the Republican Party realizing their mistakes has done quite a bit of outreach to women voters and just women in general, because uh, it is a very important constituency. And the interesting thing is that currently the 116th U.S. Congress has 127 women represented. Out of those 127 women, 105 represent the Democratic Party and only 22 represent the Republican Party. Wow. Which I think is actually quite sad when you look at the disparity between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in terms of women representation. And I think part of it is simply because Republicans really never paid attention to the gender of someone running for office. They just cared about the position of that person. Whereas Democrats realizing and grabbing that mental early on in the 80s and specifically after 1991 really realized how important it was to make sure that their representatives look similar to who their constituents actually are. Mm -hmm. And I think since then, Republicans have improved greatly, specifically in the last couple of election cycles. But again, together with the Republican female representatives and the Democratic female representatives, they still only comprise 23.7% of the 535 Congress members. Interesting. And that is incredibly sad because <laughs> that is basically less than half of what their actual electoral power is in terms of their vote. So yeah. women comprise over 50% of the population, yet they're represented at only 23.7% at the time. That's very, very sad. And I feel a little underrepresented. Having said all of that, out of the 127 women, 26 women or 26% serve in the U.S. Senate and 101 women or 23.2% serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. So four out of those women are non-voting delegates. We have two Democrats and two Republicans representing the American Samoa, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands in the United States House of Representatives. Yeah. And if we break it down even further, out of the 26 women serving in the United States Senate, 17 of them are Democrats and nine are Republicans. So the exciting thing is that this is the highest proportion of women serving as U.S. Senators in history. Wow. So I think that's amazing. And yeah. of course, you can also see that, you know, between the 17 women and nine Republicans, you can see that Republicans specifically in the Senate have really made great inroads in female representation. Oh, yeah. Compared to their Democratic counterparts. And just to capitalize on what I just said and, you know, give a little bit more example, just for reference, in January 2017, the number of women serving as senators was also at a record, but that was at 21. So we went from 21 women in January 2017 to 26 women serving today. And out of the 21 women who served in January 2017, 16 of them were Democrats and the other five were Republican, only five. And so it's kind of interesting because in total, since the last session today, the Republicans actually added four women to their party while the Democrats only added one. Huh, wow. So you could really see where the Republicans 
priorities uh, lie within the uh, women voting bloc today because they're really, really trying very, very hard to make sure that not only do they have female representation, they want to make sure that the women that they put forward can actually win in the races that they participate. Yeah. Yeah. And still, again, despite all of this, right, and despite all of the historic references that we just made, and despite all of the recent improvements that Republicans have made with women voters, the reality is that President Trump is still not popular with women. And in fact, the media often paints him as the most anti-women president in our country's history, yeah. <laughs> which is outrageous. It really is. And so today, at least in this podcast, our goal is to show you that although Trump's rhetoric on women may seem problematic and even chauvinistic uh, at many times. And although his record on women may not be perfect, as no one's is, it is completely mischaracterized by the mainstream media and nationally and abroad. Yeah. And I think if you want to learn a little bit about Trump and his treatments of women, you know, I think the uh, one of the best quotes that I've, I've read actually came from his book, uh, because in his book, Crippled America, Trump actually wrote, and I quote, anybody who wonders how I feel about women should just take a look at the Trump organization. My positive feelings about women are reflected in the number of women who have worked in my organizations. I placed women in important leadership positions in the Trump organization long before anybody else gave them that opportunity because I knew they could handle it. I was the first developer ever to put a woman in charge of a major construction project in New York City. Which is absolutely amazing. It really, really is. Because this was written way before he really considered running for president. Mm -hmm. And this is something that he's done back then in the 80s, you know, way back. So, you know, over 30 years ago, before he ran for president. And, you know, there are many, many, many articles online about all of the derogatory things that Trump has said about women. And unfortunately, I'm sure many of us have had the misfortune of reading most of them. But again, the reality is that in order to get a fair and complete picture, we must and have to examine his actions as opposed to just his words and rhetoric. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we've been saying all the time. Look at more of the actions because the actions really speak volumes. They do. And, you know, the thing about words and rhetoric is that it could easily be be misrepresented. I mean, manipulated all the time. Manipulated all the time. And we know this from personal experience. And again, (laughs) you know, we're nobodies, right? But we were even interviewed a couple of times for different publications where we talked extensively about our support for the president. Yeah. And our words were taken so out of context. Yeah. You know, just to paint a completely different picture from what we wanted to say. Yeah. Uh, And it really taught us a lot. So now whenever we do get interviewed, we make sure to record our interviews so that, you know, we have receipts as to what we said. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, that's what you have to do in this day and age. Exactly. And again, you know, we're nobodies. So, you know, to take someone like a president who the whole world looks up to and, uh, you know, looking up to and listens to every word that they say, when you take their speeches, you know, their responses and, you know, just snapshots of what they say and uh, misrepresent, it really does a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, his actions in support of women are so extremely very hard to find. And not because he hasn't done a lot of good for women. It's because it's buried so deeply within the internet search algorithms. The sad reality is that very few journalist organizations incentivize their journalists to actually accurately report on how Trump has elevated women and the issues they care about to the forefront of his agenda. Yeah. And again, you know, I like I, I get it. I, I really, really do. He almost makes it too easy for his detractors to paint him in a negative women-hating light. I, yeah. I get it. And at the end of the day, he is a no-nonsense straight shooter who doesn't go easy on anyone, regardless of their sex, color, or creed and also because he's not working off a teleprompter or a script fine-tuned by a consultant and a bunch of focus groups he is so much more prone to making gaps as a result yeah. and feed the anti-trumpers trump derangement syndrome yeah yeah right and uh, if we were to 
actually look closely at his long history working with and dealing with women, we would actually find uh, out that when it comes to women, he not only walks the walk, but he also refuses to pay empty lip service in order to convince women voters that he's on their side. Yeah. He refuses to satisfy liberal elites and the mainstream media like the previous administration did and the current White House hopeful Joe Biden. Yeah. Right. And again, his 2019 apology, I think, is just an example because, yeah. hello, Joe, where were you all these years <laughs> before? But anyways, I, I digress. Trump's trust in female leaders has been really a fundamental characteristic of his presidency. Assigning women to higher power positions in government is no exception. And in fact, he's hired an astounding number of women for senior level positions in the White House, actually more than any other president in history, including George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, literally anyone. And you would think that all of the you know media outlets would be talking nonstop about this, about this feat of women being in all these senior White House positions. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you know, they're completely mum and not a word has been heard about this. Yeah. And despite impressive hiring practices during his first year in the White House, President Trump has received little to no credit for his choice of women for the most senior positions on his cabinet, as well as the West Wing. And in fact, the media very selectively reported only on the male appointees of the Trump administration, claiming that he was appointing more white and male than any first cabinet since Reagan. And of course, this myth was perpetuated by Representative Nancy Pelosi's comments, as well as media reports that Trump only valued the opinions of guys named Steve. Um, (laughs) Which, again, it's just so ridiculous on so many incredible levels. Because if you look at his inner circle, we know that he pays women who work for him as much or even more than he pays for men. And that's because he pays based on performance as opposed to gender. And the women at his administration and Trump organization actually performed better than the men they competed with. Therefore, Trump rewarded their efforts. And this is something that we see throughout his career. Meanwhile, his 2016 opponent, uh, Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, said all of the right politically corrected things, but paid women who worked for her 38% less than the men. Wow. Remember women who don't vote for women have a special place in hell? Well, (laughs) women who don't pay women a fair share of what they deserve also have a special place in hell. Because this is ridiculous. Yeah. And I really wonder how Biden's treatment of women compares against Trump. And it was unfortunately impossible for me to find data as to how the women working for Biden directly and the Obama administration in general were paid compared to their male counterparts. Yeah, well. But I just want to say, if any of you out there have any resources uh, regarding this, please send them our way. We would really greatly appreciate them. And we will link them as well uh, next to the rest of our resources so that we know whether he paid them fairly or not. Yeah, that would be really great to know. Really, really great to know. We're less interested in what his space structure is like today, because what I really want to know is what his space structures were before he ran for president, before he made that 2019 phone call uh, (laughs) to apologize. I want to know what he did before the Me Too movement when no one was looking. And so, you know, since I don't know the information, I'm going to optimistically assume that all high profile positions, at least the high profile positions, were probably paid the same. But, you know, yeah. I don't know. You know, considering that Hillary Clinton didn't, I don't know how he stacks up compared to her. Yeah. But in any case, more than any other president in recent history, Trump has kept and fulfilled his promises that he's made to his constituents and others, most of which actually benefited women directly. Yeah. His actions proved that he cared about all Americans, yeah. right? Not just males, not just whites, uh, and not just women or blacks or yeah. Hispanics or Jews or anyone else, because we live in the real world where our jobs and our income levels, along with that of our family members, really matter. Yeah. Our investments that we make, they really matter. And the safety uh, and our security 
also matters, and our rights to practice our chosen faith unhindered by those who would seek to impose their choices on us also really, really matter. Uh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Right? <laughs> I'm an atheist, but I'm not going to impose my beliefs on anyone else. Yeah. And, you know, I would hope that believers wouldn't impose their beliefs on me as an atheist. And we can all coexist, and we can all respect each other in this, you know, realm of the United States of America. And that's what being American is all about. It is, because even though it says in God, we trust on so many of our official documents, it also says that we get to separate our faith from our government and we also each get to practice our own belief system as long as it doesn't negatively affect others. And I think that's very, very important because if we would actually be able to focus all of our attention on all of the good that is happening around us, as opposed to all of the negativity and the bad that is around us, we would actually be able to recognize what actually works. Yeah. Right? And I think that's why the water is are being so muddied by liberals, the Democrats, and the media because they don't want people to see what actually works. Yeah, because they want to take away the hope. They want to take away the hope. And create fear. Exactly. I I completely agree with that. And, uh, you know, if we were to actually able to recognize what actually works, we would recognize that Trump works because he works for women and all Americans in general. And even though Trump worked with Democrats and Republicans to pass a lot of important legislation, unfortunately, it really didn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. But Trump has actually actually got a lot done on a bipartisan basis and you know which when is amazing he, it really is and when he said you know i'm a great negotiator mm-hmm. uh as many obstacles as democrats and world leaders in general yeah. actually put uh, in front of him to prevent him from being able to claim that successfully that he's such a great negotiator um he's actually been able to negotiate and push through a lot of really really important reforms including the criminal justice reform that has made a huge impact on women around this country country and more specifically on black women around this country yeah. as we know that nearly 75% of black children are living in single mother fatherless homes yeah. and that makes a really big difference on their lives and also their possibilities for future prosperity yeah. and yeah. so this criminal justice reform really makes a difference by allowing a lot of these children to now instead of living in fatherless absentee life to you know have fathers present in their lives yeah. he's also tackled opiate and sex trafficking through legislation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And he's passed the new uh, right to try law, uh, giving dying Americans access to experimental medications, which of course affects everyone, but also a lot of women suffering from many specific diseases that affect women that have not been cured. So that is, I think, just incredible uh, on the part of our president. Absolutely. And it's interesting because even before he became president, women who have actually worked with Trump's say that he was ahead of his time in providing career advancement for women and promoted women in male-dominated industries. Yeah, It's really, really interesting. And before he was actually elected as president, um, I read a really fascinating article by Frances Steed Sellers, who's a senior writer and editor at the Washington Post. And she wrote an article that was titled Donald Trump, a champion of women? Question uh, mark. His female employees think so. And in it, she said, and I quote, many women who have worked closely with Trump say he was a corporate executive ahead of his time in providing career advancement for women. While some say he could be boorish, his companies nurtured and promoted women in an otherwise male-dominated industry. And this article is written in 2015. Right, November 24th, 2015 to be exact. Yeah. And again, we'll link it uh, as well so you guys can read it yourselves. But it was really interesting because at the time, his vice president of human resources for the Trump organization, Deirdre Rosen, praised Trump for his flexibility in allowing for a family 
family life. I mean, think about that, right? We talk about a family work balance all the time yeah. and how women are struggling with this balance because of the expectations that are being put on them in the professional uh, working world yeah. and the expectations that are still being put on them in their personal family life. Yeah. And so here we have Deidre Rosen, the Vice President of Human Resources for the Trump Organization, actually praising Trump for his flexibility in allowing for family life. And she said, and I quote, that after working for big public companies, the seven years she has spent at the family-run Trump Organization have offered her the flexibility to be present at soccer games and drama club with her children. Yeah. That's amazing because I know many women <laughs> would love to have that kind of possibility. Yeah. And especially, you know, executive women who really have to put their families on the back burner and yeah. work, you know, 24-7 yeah. uh, in male-dominated industries to prove themselves. And, yeah. you know, they have to really sacrifice their relationships with their children, their husbands, yeah. you know, their families and friends. And, you know, Trump actually nurtured those relationships because he believed that if you're happy at home, you'd be happy at work and you would be that much more productive. I think that's amazing. I think that's great. It's great. And it probably explains why the women at his organizations actually did better than men because they took full advantage of the flexibility that he provided. And that explains why they were also paid better. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, Another former Trump executive, uh, Louis Sunshine, she's a former Trump executive vice president. And she said, and again, I quote, that from the standpoint of being a woman, I just thought he was phenomenal, so supportive and encouraging. Lynn Patton, a black female executive for the Trump organization, actually released a statement in 2016. And I remember seeing her statement and she really tearfully, you know, released the statement and she said that um, she did it despite the Trump's family's wishes for her not to release the statement because they were worried for her safety and the kind of negative uh, hatred that she would get as a result of releasing this. But she said that she just couldn't stand by seeing the family that she loved and respected so much being turned apart so much. Wow. And so in 2016, she actually defended her boss against accusations that he's a racist and a bigot. And she tearfully revealed how she struggled with substance abuse and addiction for years. And instead of kicking her to the curb, she said that the Trump organization, and more specifically, his entire family, loyally stood by her through immense, immensely difficult times. And I'm proud to stand before you tonight and support Donald Trump, not just in spite of the color of my skin, but in fact because of the color of my skin. God bless this country, God bless this family, and God bless Donald J. Trump. Wow, that's really touching. It's it's nice. it's so touching. And, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting because, you know, I can go through so many examples because there's literally just dozens and dozens of women who say the same thing. Yeah. And it's kind of a theme when you're actually, you know, when you actually ask women who've had a direct relationship with Trump, yeah. they all say that he's been absolutely incredible and amazing in his relationship to them and that he's been very fair in his treatment towards women as compared to men. He hasn't been easy on women, but he's been very fair towards them. And what I found is that the women who do end up criticizing Trump are usually the ones who were extremely positive in regards to their relationship and uh, high regard towards Trump. And then when things soured or when they, you know, got some kind of an opportunity like writing a tell-all book or, you know, (laughs) appearing on different media outlets and getting a lot of attention or when they're fired, uh, that's when they go negative. And I think a perfect example of that would be Omarosa, who, you know, was shouting from the 
rooftops of how yeah. incredible Trump is, how he's the least uh, racist, you know, sexist person in America. Yeah. And then once she was let go, all of a sudden he became racist, you know, yeah. was using the N-word and, you know, all these different uh, slurs and, you know, really became very, very nasty towards the president yeah. when before she was very positive. And, yeah. you know, that's just the theme of most of these women. And when you look at the women who had a direct relationship with them, if you look at their history, usually what I found is if I look further in history, usually what I found is that before they went negative, they actually spoke very highly of him. Yeah. So that's just something very, very interesting. Yeah. And again, I, you know, it's something that he's been very consistent of. You know, he told George Stephanopoulos on ABC's This Week in, in 2015 that, you know, again, I quote, I've had such an amazing relationship with women in, in business. Uh, they are amazing executives. They are killers. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what he respects. He respects strength. He respects sharp people who show strength yeah. and the willingness to stand up when they're being pushed around. And when he finds women like that, he respects them just as highly. Yeah. And um, actually, to build on top of that, in 1989, the world was such a male-dominated world, and yeah. especially the corporate world. And at the time, a cover of Savvy Women had the headline that read, Trump's Top Women. And the sub had read, Surprise, Mr. Macho's Inner Circle isn't an all-boys club. Which wow. was a surprise indeed. I mean, and this is in 1989. This is in 1989, way yeah. before he ran for president. And it's just, it's, it's really fascinating. Because, I mean, this was 31 years ago, right? Yeah. 31 years ago, when Savvy Women ran him on the cover, four of the eight people in Trump's innermost circle were women, including his then-wife, Ivana Trump, who was not in any of these particular photos uh, on the cover of the Savvy Women, because she was actually running the Plaza Hotel at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the other women executives were, and all the others were all executive vice presidents. Yeah. And among them, you had Barbara Ress, who was in charge of construction of Trump Tower, and then the Plaza. You had Blanche Spragu, who was head of project development. And you also had Susan Hilbron, who was Trump's chief lawyer. Yeah. At the time, Barbara Ress said that he hired her for his signature project because he liked the way she stood up to the men when he was working for another builder. Again, she also said this was before his bodyguards, before his best-selling books, and before his comb-over. And she says that back when there were just six people in the entire Trump organization, okay, six people, back when Trump drove his own limo to Ress's father's funeral because the chauffeur at the time was off on that day. So this was the real Trump. Yeah. And overnight, Barbara Russ went from earning $25,000 as an assistant supervisor to $55,000 as vice president, more than doubling her salary, which, you know, now $55,000 doesn't sound that much. But at the time, that was a whole lot of moolah, yeah. <laughs> you know, for a whole lot of people. And it's interesting because she's never even run a project before, yeah. ever. But as she said, he told me he knew I could build a Trump Tower, which again is amazing, right? A woman yeah. who's never even run a project. And here you have a guy who just a guy, you have our president, <laughs> Uh, who was at the time just a guy who says, you know what, I'm going to put my money on this woman, even though she has no experience, yeah. because of the way that she is. I'm going to look at her and not at the cover of her yeah. book. I'm going to look at the contents of what she has to offer, and I'm going to make her the head of this project. And she did, as we now know, a fabulous job, you know, really just proving that his instincts are on point. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Blanche uh, Spragu tells a similar story where she describes how she entered the real estate business as a 19-year-old, divorced 
divorced single mother who worked her way up through the sales part of the business. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, imagine a 19-year-old uh, divorced single mother working her way up, and she landed on Trump's radar at a meeting where she more than held her own in a room full of men. And at the time, he said something along the lines of, I love that mouth, I have to have it, before he offered her a job at about the same time as Riss. Right? That's, Isn't it fascinating? Really, yeah. yeah. And it's just really interesting, because I'm sure that if that got out today, you yeah. know, he would be just bombarded with, you know, yeah. chauvinistic accusations yeah. and how, you know, he sexually assaulted this woman by saying, I love her mouth. When in fact, he just meant, I love the way that she argues and stands up for herself. Yeah. She is intelligent and she's using yeah. her, you know, uh, verbal abilities impeccably. Yeah. yeah. So again, I just thought it was just really, you know, fascinating. And at the time, Spragu, who is now retired, said that Trump did not hire her because, I quote, I am a woman. He just hired who he thought was the best person for the job. Yeah. And she really proved to be the best person for the job. Oh, yeah. And both Ress and Spragu agree that whatever Trump's motivation for bringing them aboard, he actually treated them equally and once they were there. And no sexist diminishment and certainly no added difference. Yeah. They said if you did the wrong thing, he got as mad at you as he got if you had a mustache. <laughs> uh, you know, that was a direct quote from Spragu. And even Michael Cohen, uh, President Trump's ex-lawyer, uh, who's an embattled lawyer nowadays, said at the time when he was running for office that Donald Trump employs more women than men at the upper echelons of his real estate empire and in many cases pays them more. Mm. Now, a lot of people will say that Michael Cohen's word really means nothing at this point after everything that has gone down and after everything that we know about him. But the receipts are there and the documentation is there. Yeah. And uh, today, even according to Trump's advisors, and again, they have shown these receipts and have shown proof of this, there are more women than men holding executive positions in the Trump organization heading such departments as human resources, golf and hotel management, and global licensing, even though women make up just 43% of the overall workforce. Yeah, wow. Um, So I think that's fascinating, right? And again, you know, the reality is that women who are in similar positions as men, as we've mentioned before, are compensated at equal and in many cases higher pay rates because Donald Trump compensates based on results and not based on gender. Which I think that's the way the world should be run. Ideally, right? That's how it should be run. But we also know that it isn't. And there's a lot of metrics to measure that. And there's still a large pay gap. I remember the statistics were 74 cents to the dollar for women. I think now under Trump, uh, the official statistic that I read, uh, and again, don't quote me on this because I don't remember exactly the number, but it was something like 84 cents to the dollar. So that divide has definitely shrunk that gap of what women make per hour versus what men make per hour. And I think that's incredible because that Mm. happened under Trump and not under a previously Democratic administration, including Biden's. And Trump has done things that nobody else has done. You know, his 68-story Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue right next to Tiffany's was the tallest entirely glass exterior building in Manhattan when it opened in 1983. Okay, Mm. so that was a record, right? Our theme of broken records (laughs) still continues in this podcast as well because that single-handedly helped pioneer the modern luxury building industry that we see today worldwide. You know, Trump is responsible for this. And Barbara Ress, at 33 years old, became the first woman to ever be put in charge of supervising the construction of a skyscraper when Donald Trump hired her in 1980. Wow. She was a 33-year-old wide-eyed woman who was put in this position and she was quite successful and she was very handily rewarded for it. Oh, definitely. And actually, even Trump has said in the past that one of the things, and again, this is a direct quote where he said, one of the things I'm most proud of about was that building that the person I put in charge of overseeing construction was a 33-year-old woman. 
I made that decision in 1983 when the fight for gender equality in business was really beginning. None of the people who whine about the way I talk to women mention the fact that I voluntarily promoted gender equality in a male-dominated industry. The women who work and have worked for me will vouch for the fact that I was as demanding of them as I was of their male counterparts. That's the kind of gender equality we need. Leadership that inspires the best in people, male or female. I love that. I love that. Leadership that inspires the best in people. Absolutely. And that's something that I really admire about Trump, because what we're seeing today is for, you know, the sake of equality, for the sake of, you know, equality between women and men, we're seeing actually a lot of women being promoted into positions by, you know, special interests where they're not necessarily the best fit for that position. They're not necessarily the most um, qualified qualified person to fill that position. And what's interesting with Trump is that not only did he pick women based on their qualifications, but he didn't allow for any slack, whether they were women or men yeah. if they made a mistake he went hard for them oh, yeah. and he demanded that they correct their errors and those that did did and those that didn't were let go and fired yeah uh, and that's something incredible i think yeah oh yeah Right. In fact, actually, Michael D'Antonio, the author of the just published uh, book, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, describes a balding male executive whom Trump confronted with a suggestion to use Rogaine because he reportedly said, I quote, going bold is the worst thing you can do. And for him, it's all about appearances uh, for Trump, you know, and that's something that we, you know, we know and we could see from his many, many decades of business. And of course, in his administration, he really values looks. And D'Antonio says that, you know, you serve him both by your competence and your looks. He wants everyone around him to seem the way he wants to be seen. The best looking, the smartest, the best, period. Appearances matter more than anything to him. Yeah. Um, because I think even though I wouldn't consider Trump superficial, I think he understands that the public is. And I think he understands that people, unfortunately, are judged based yeah. on their looks. Yeah. So when he's choosing people of power, he wants them to look good. And I don't mean look good in terms of you know being sexually pleasing. I mean looking good as in being put together. He wants them to look like they're put together, wear the best clothes, you know. Look the part, play the part. Look the part, play the part. You yeah. want to be professional, you want to play with the big boys and the big women, then you have to dress the part. And in fact, Sarah Malone, an executive vice president of the Trump International Golf Links in Aberdeen, Scotland, praised her boss, saying that unlike many employers, women are given equal status in the business. I report directly to Trump. He is tough, but he is a great motivator and empowers his team to get results. Yeah. And that just adds to the long list of women who worked for him who praised them such as Spragu who also said that he was the best boss she's ever had and she left the Trump organization after nearly 20 years and even created her own real estate brokerage with <laughs> Trump's endorsement and help so you know even after leaving yeah. his organization he actually supported her in starting her own business that would be in direct competition with him that just really shows you that he not only wants the best he also wants to compete with the best and yeah. he considered her to be the best so that is just a little bit of history background of what Trump was like before he became president. Yeah. But now let's look at what Trump is like after he became president. Okay, you guys. Well, that concludes part one of our podcast. And I am so excited for part two. We have so much to cover and so much to talk about regarding what Trump and his GOP allies have done for women within the last four years. Yes, we have so, so much more to cover. But before we go, if you haven't done 
done so already, please make sure to subscribe and hit that notification bell so that you guys will know when our next podcast or live video or just video come out. <laughs> <laughs> and give us a thumbs up because it really does help our channel. And until next time, you guys, bye for now. Bye.